to the, the longest not Bible study for the Acts of the Apostles. Um, but before we move on to it, so a couple of weeks ago I was asked by uh, Denny, who we all miss, um, a question <coughs> after the class, and that's why I did the whole thing about useful translations and the difference of translations. So last week, after the class, John asked uh, a question that I... Um, that I've been asked um, actually a few times before. He, he wondered if it was a question people had asked. So I'm going to go over it with you because there's no nothing, you know, it's a useful thing to, to know. So um, the handout I'm about to give you, it speaks for itself. It's a very ancient homily for Holy Saturday. And it's about the Lord's descent into hell. So, John, do you remember the question, how, how you asked the question, John? Yeah, I asked, you know, all the religions in the past, prior to the birth of Christ, those people believed in gods that they were taught to believe in, and that those were the gods of the time that were real and sacred in their minds. And I asked Father, what happened to their souls when they passed? Okay. He specifically asked, what happened to the people in the Old Testament before Jesus died on the cross? So, um, John's going to read this out. We'll, we'll pass this out. This is one of the most beautiful, in my opinion, is one of the most beautiful things that you could ever read or hear. So, um, we'll pass them out if you guys can go that way with them. And should be enough. The file, the, um, the photocopier went on the, as we say in the old country, it went on the fritz. Probably you're not allowed to say that now, but we say it in Britain because if anything's bad, we blame the Germans. So. You see that here? You can see that in the States as well? Alright. So John's going to, um, going to read it when we're... Do you want to start? John, please. This is from an ancient homily from the Holy Saturday, the Lord's descending to hell. What is happening? Today is a great silence over the earth. A great silence and stillness. And a great silence because the king sleeps. The earth was in terror and was still because God slept in the flesh and raised up those who were sleeping from the ages. God has died in the flesh, and the underworld has trembled. Truly, he goes to seek out our first parent like a lost sheep. He wishes to visit those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death. 
He goes to free prisoner Adam and his fellow prisoner Eve from their cage. He who is God and Adam's son. The Lord goes into them holding his victorious <coughs> weapon, his cross. When Adam, the first created man, sees him, he strikes his breast in terror and calls out to all, My Lord, be with you all. And Christ in reply says to Adam, And with you your spirit. And grasping his hand, he raises him up, saying, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you life. I am your God who for your sake became your son, who for you and your descendants now speak and command with authority those in prison, come forth, and those in darkness, have light, and those who sleep, rise. I command you, awake sleeper, I have not made you to be held prisoner in the underworld. Arise from the dead, I am the life of the dead. Arise, O man. Work my hand, work of my hands. Arise, you who are fashioned in my image. Rise, let us go hence, for you in me and I in you. Together we are one undivided person. For you, I your God, became your son. For you, I the master, took on your form. And that of a slave, for you, I who be I, who am above the heavens, came on earth and under the earth for you, man. I became as a man without help, free among the dead for you, who left the garden. I was handed over to the Jews from a garden and crucified in a garden. Look at the spittle on my face, which I received because of you, in order to restore you to that first divine in breathing at creation. See the blows on my cheeks, which I have accepted in order to refashion your distorted form to my own image. See the scourging on my back, which I accepted in order to dispense the load of your sins, which was laid upon your back. See my hands nailed to the tree for a good purpose, for you who stretched out your hand to the tree for an evil one. I slept on the cross with a sword pierced in my side, for you, who slept in paradise and brought forth Eve from your side. My side healed the pain of your side. My sleep will release you from your sleep in Hades. My sword has checked the sword which is turned against you. But arise, let us go hence. The enemy brought you out of the land of paradise. I will reinstate you, no longer in paradise, but on the throne of heaven. I denied you the tree of life, which was a figure. But now I myself am united to you, I who am life. I posted the cherubim to guard you as they would slaves. Now I make cherubim worship you as they would God. The cherubim throne has been prepared. The bears are ready and waiting. The bridal chamber is in order. The food is provided. The everlasting houses and rooms are in readiness. The treasures of good things have been opened. The kingdom of heaven 
has been prepared before the ages. Thank you. That's what Jesus was doing on Holy Saturday. So the answer to your question, John, is that the salvation of the Savior, he went to release those people who were waiting. So, as I was saying to you, the, the, the problem we have in <coughs> English with understanding this is that we only have one word for hell. But that's not the case, uh, wasn't the case for Jews. The, the Jews. the Jews had two names for hell. Sheol and Gehenna. Sheol was a place of waiting. Gehenna was a place of the damned. So, um, if you're familiar with... Um, the Vikings had a similar thing, but with Greek um, religion... Hades, which is in Greek, is what's called hell. Hades wasn't somewhere that you couldn't get out of. There were two parts to Hades. That's why you have stories about people going into to Hades to get back the one they loved and all that kind of stuff. But there was also a fiery lake in Hades. And beyond that is where the damned went and the damned couldn't get, get out. So in Jewish theology, Sheol before the Messiah, so obviously Jews still hold this now we don't of course the righteous people went to Sheol and they were waiting for what you just heard read out they were waiting for the saviour to go and bring them up to heaven but the damned weren't going anywhere so that's now in English some of you might remember this happened because it happened in America, much to the embarrassment of the American bishops who were told by Pope Benedict to correct the error they made. So in the Apostles' Creed, it says Jesus descended into hell. And for a while in America, it had been changed to descended to the dead. Remember that? Yeah. And then it was changed to what it should have been, descended to the hell, to, into hell. So the American bishops were told to properly explain this to their people. Do you remember the explanation? <coughs> Anybody want to remember? Anybody remember the explanation? No, because you never got it, probably. <laughs> um, in, when they were discussing the creed, the Apostles' Creed, uh, when they were talking about hell, they were talking about Hades, and they meant this concept of place where some where Jesus went somewhere where you could bring people out of, not Gehenna. But when it was translated into Latin, it was translated into Infernum. And Infernum means this kind of hell, as opposed to another world. <coughs> then, when it was translated into English via the Germanic languages, they only had one word, and their word is Hela, H-E-L-A, which is where we get the word hell. So that's how that came about. But the, the simple thing would have been to explain to people, if people were curious about it, that where Jesus is going is to Sheol. He's going, because we hear it talked about in Scripture, you know. Um, well, you'll notice it now, because I've brought it to you. Uh, Gehenna 
<coughs> the city of Jerusalem had a, a waste dump nearby, and it was called Gehenna, and it was always on fire because they were always burning refuse. So that's partly why they used the image of Gehenna. But so the, in the Apostles' Creed, the descent into hell is the descent to Sheol to release the righteous who are waiting for the Saviour. So, there we are. That was John's question. Okay, any questions about that? Yes, ma'am. Um, I like this and everything, but I wondered where it came from. This information. <coughs> this ancient homily. Okay. The ancient homily was passed on. Passed on. They don't know who wrote it. Oh, okay. But it ended up... So if you want to, if you actually want to find it in the book, you'll find it in the Office of Readings for the Holy Saturday. So the Office of Readings for Holy Saturday, and it says in there by uh, an ancient, ancient homily, anonymous. We have quite a lot of ancient things that are anonymous, um, but are, are worth their own merit, um, just because they're, they're beautiful. So... Um, I have heard it attributed to certain people, but I won't confuse you by telling you that because then I'd need to explain who the people were and why why it was not attributed to them and why it might be them and not be them and all that kind of stuff. But it dates from before the 500s. So, okay. Right. So that was the answer to that question. So last week, we um, had a look at the concept of sola scriptura. Who wants to give a quick snapshot of what Sola Scriptura is? John? You'll hear that? The concept that everything that needs to be known can be found in the Bible and you don't need anything else. And what is the biggest... Some of the problems with that? We didn't have the what we call the Bible now. <coughs> Any others? Well, for that, that's an addendum to that. John? Jesus was crucified. He connects to him. Welcome into heaven. No, that, well, that's that's just, never went through the sacrament. No, that that's that's a defense for is it only Christians that go to heaven or something like that? No, the canon of scripture is the 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 list of books that are in the Bible now. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. That's the one. <coughs> Say that louder, Roger. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. There's nowhere in the Bible that says that only in the Bible will you find things that are in the Bible, that are only in the Bible, that are in the Bible, that will be useful because they're only in the Bible. And don't ask me to repeat that. I'm glad that was recorded. Is there a list in the Bible of the books that should be in the Bible? No. No. There is not. So that takes us to what Sandy talked about. What did you talk about there, Sandy? Tradition. Tradition. Right. So, we had a three-legged stool. <coughs> what are the three 
legs of the stool, he says, covering them on the board. Gerald, what are they? Tradition and magisterium. Okay, it's a three-legged stool. That's what? What's the oldest one? Magisterium. The, the oldest one's probably tradition. The oldest one's probably tradition, then it would be magisterium, then it would be scripture. So, second Bible says, so there's two types of tradition. What are the two types of tradition? Capital T, small t. What do we use them for? What is small t tradition? And can you can you give me an example? Local ways. Local ways. Local so ways. give me an example of what is a tradition that's local to this parish, this Catholic parish that is not a universal Catholic thing. Pilgrimage around the block with an icon on a particular Sunday. Right, that's okay. Right, so what's what is a capital T tradition then? Go, you can give me an example. <coughs> a holy day of obligation. Well, no, because a holy day of obligation could be Christmas, localized. Christmas, Easter. <laughs> How about those two? Well, some some Catholic churches, some Catholic rites tell the Easter on a different day. Well, it's actually could be more than that. But you could, I mean, that's, that's vestments would be one. You don't have to have the vestments looking the way that they are. That's just an example. There are lots of capital T and lots of small t traditions. Um, Catholics confuse them all the time, and they think, oh. You can't do that, Father, because we don't do that here. So what? <laughs> they, you know, they do it in ninety-five percent of the church, so they don't do it here. I, and I can tell you, I've, I gave you some examples of that. People who who have said to me, um, and it's very funny. I, I always find this on a humorous when people start tell a foreigner and start the start the sentence with. Everywhere they do such and such a thing. And when I say to people, well, I've lived in six different countries, and I can tell you that they don't even do this in the parish down the road. <laughs> and people look at you with some kind of, what do you mean? They don't, what do you mean that they don't do this? What do you mean they don't hold hands? What do you mean? That's what you're supposed to do. And I, and I get people tell me that, and I'll say, well, where's that? Where do you find that? Where do you get that from? And people look at you as if you've got two heads. I mean, people always look at me as if I've got two heads. So. <laughs> anyway, okay, so um, we looked at Sola Scriptura and how that's not a thing. Canon of Scripture, as Helen said, which is the list, the settled list. Um, I'm going to also mention today, if I get a chance, the Talmud and the Mishnah, because I've got a handout for them if I get to. Um, but what I want to talk about just now is the little bit about tradition.
So be where it'd be quite good for one of you to break into song. <laughs> Fiddler on the roof. <laughs> There's a, yeah, a song called Tradition and Fiddler on the Roof. You not familiar with that? Yeah. yeah. So this table can sing it apparently. <laughs> right. Do it in do it in honour of Topple, Daniel. On you go, in honour of Topple, you sing Tradition. Yeah. Tradition. <laughs> okay. He has passed away. He has. Only what, last month? Yeah, something like that. Just recently. Um, so, tradition. I've told you this before in homilies and I mentioned this here in class. What's wrong? <coughs> Where does the word tradition come from? It's a Latin word, tradere. What does it mean? To tell. Right? No, that's the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, living member of the church. Tradition. To pass on. To hand on. That's what tradere means. So the word, so the word tradition means, apparently, I wrote this down ages ago, in Webster's Dictionary, it's, it's defined as the handing down of information, beliefs, and customs by word of, word of mouth, or by example from one generation to another, without <coughs> written instruction. Tradition. And we talked about Sola Scriptura, how non-Catholic <coughs> Christians reject tradition, um, which is kind of ironic, apart from the fact it doesn't say in the Bible only things in the Bible. What's, other, what's the other very ironic thing about re rejecting tradition? From any, anybody's point of view. That's true, right? But but even more kind of fundamental than that. Why are the Lutherans called Lutherans? Is he alive? Is that a traditional name? Yes. Is that the example I give you? If we formed a church here now, right, with the chief Puba, <laughs> Bernard Leonard, the chief Puba of the church. We are, call ourselves the Church of the Half Open Tabernacle. Uh, and then we met, we met next week and we decided that we would start writing down commandments under the guidance of the Chief Puba. That's already tradition. Because we're looking back on that. We're looking back at what? Now, do any of you not have photographs? of your children in your house? Anybody not got any? I mean, if you don't have children, you don't write, but... Has <laughs> anybody not got photographs of relatives in their house? No, you've all got them, right? Why do we have them? Why do we do that? Because we, it's important to us to be connected. Has anybody here got photographs of... They're great, great grandparents. I know sometimes Americans have got that. Okay. From how many years? How many? How many? How long ago? Four generations. So what's that? About 180 years or something? Yeah. Same for you. Right. Did you know those people? No. No. Did you ever meet those people? No. Right. But why is it important? Why is that important? It's your heritage. Passed on. 
And that, that's the problem with when people attack us for when we talk about tradition, whether it be capital T, small t. It's fundamental <coughs> to humanity to have tradition. I would suggest, I think it probably applies to all of you in here, uh, um, one of the, the things that we generally find most appalling is, you might not know what it's properly called, but revisionist history. When people look back with the eyes of now and decide to judge the way the world was when you were 10 years old with the eyes of now. That, to, to most right-thinking people, that's abhorrent to do that. doesn't mean to say we look back on slavery, whatever it happened, and we say that was okay. But it's important that when we look back at history, that we are looking with the eyes of the world was a different place then. Um, that's really important because all these things in tradition are important to us. So, um, we read some of these out last last week, I think. Yeah, this one. Second um, Thessalonians 2.15. St. Paul reminds the Thessalonians, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Then, writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.2, he said, I will praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. Now, I gave you this here, this one here. So this is what the counter to this would be. This is from Matthew, this is Matthew 15, <coughs> uh, verses 1 to 6. Some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat, Jesus replied. And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that they might have been used to help their, what they might have used to help their mother and father is devoted to God, they are not bound to honour their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God. So basically, the Pharisees have found a way round the second, the third commandment, rather. Um, to honour your father and your mother. and But this is held up as Jesus saying that traditions are a bad thing, but he's not. He is talking about this specific thing that they do. Now, what is the expression? I've used it a few times in homilies. I might have said it here. What's the, pro what's the thing you have to be careful about if you take something out of context? Changes. So, context, <coughs> pretext. If you take something out of context, you're, you are deliberately doing it to set up a pretext. Have any of you had um, non Catholic um, Christian missionaries come to your door? <laughs> you, you, you had that, you had that, right. Um, you know how um, a lot of it's very, it's so you don't get a chance to speak, right? Right. If you can get them to stop talking, <coughs> and you ask them, doesn't matter what the verse is, 
So they, so they say, say they say, oh, I see you're a Catholic. Um, it says in, in Scripture, call no man father. Right. And you say to them, what's the verse before? And they'll say, what do you mean? You say, what's the verse before? What's the verse after? What is, what is that line that you've taken that? What's going on there? Who's Jesus talking to? What's the, what's the, what's the, where's that coming from? They will not know. And if you know the context, then you know that what Jesus is doing is he is talking about, he's talking using hyperbole. That means he's exaggerating to make a point, and that's the millionth time I've told you. That would be an example of it. Don't look frightened. <laughs> that's, that's an example of hyperbole. That's the millionth time I've told you. Most of you, at some point, <coughs> will have said to your kids, I've told you that a hundred times. That does not mean that you've kept notes somewhere. That you've, or, well, I hope it's not. But you've kept notes somewhere that you've actually said that thing a hundred times. That's hyperbole. When we speak, when we write, we use lots of different idioms of speech. And, and how do you know the difference then? So, when you're reading scripture, how do you know whether or not, for talking sake, it's hyperbole or it's literal? How do you know the difference? Right, okay, so you could know by the context, right? You could know by the context. But when Jesus says, um, you will be able to pick up snakes and you will not die, is he being literal or is he speaking in hyperbole? <coughs> okay, it could be both. But which is it? Right, we know it's hyperbole. How do we know? Because that's what we're taught. Because it's passed on to us. It's tradition. Now, there is... Uh, I can't remember their name. There's a, a, a group of Protestant pastors. They're all from the one family. The family is significantly smaller than it used to be. Um, who, <laughs> who preach using venomous snakes. And they throw them at each other and stuff like that. And it's like the third generation of them. And of course, they regularly die. Um, but they're taking that literally. Now, there is, in the Acts of the Apostles, near the end, um, St. Paul's in Malta, and he's collecting firewood, and there's a viper. And he just looks at the viper and he shakes it off his hand. It's unclear if it bit him, bit him or not. But the, fact, the, the point is, it could be literal. But we know that it's not because we are taught that that's passed on to us what the interpretation of that is. That's why tradition is so important. So, moving on to... This poem. Okay. So... Inspiration, typology, revelation, infallibility. They're all words that at different times you've probably heard. You might have heard me use them. Um, inspiration. What do you think it literally means to say 
out with scripture, but what do you think it literally means when somebody says, I don't know, I just became inspired? It does mean that. Literally, what do you think it means? The clue is here. That my, my spirits became inflamed, inspired. So, in Scripture, we have a thing called inspiration. And here's a... Got a handout with us on it, I think, but here's a, a short definition of who's my go to guy? Catechism man is Phil. Article 105 in the Catechism. There's a whole section at the start of the Catechism which has to do with sacred scripture, starts and uh, 101 and follows. So, what was that I said? 105. Yeah, 105. Inspiration and truth of sacred scripture. Yes. God is the author of sacred scripture, the divinely revealed reality which are contained and presented in the text of sacred scripture have been written down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's good. Right? So, look. Matthew, John, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses, they were all inspired, guided by the Holy Spirit. Can you read the rest of it, Phil? Please. For Holy Mother Church, relying on the faith of the apostolic age, accepts the sacred and canonical, the books of the Old and the New Testament, whole and entire, with all their parts, on the grounds that, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they have God as their author, and have been handed on as such to the church herself. Okay, now, in next article 106, you see God inspired the human authors to the sacred books to compose the books. So, there's a lot of confusion, confusion in people's minds about what this actually means. So, um, very quick definition. The gift of the Holy Spirit which assisted a human author to write a biblical book so that it has God as its author and teaches faithfully, without error, the saving truth that God has willed us to be consigned. So, who writes the book? Literally? Yeah, who writes the book? Who wrote, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew. Matthew, right. Who was the person that inspired them? The Holy Spirit, God. Right. Okay. So, you know, my um, my favourite painter is a man called Caravaggio. So, when Caravaggio was young, I might not have enough because the the computer went on the fritz. But when Caravaggio was young, he painted a painting of the the evangelist Matthew. And it was to convey inspiration. Now that painting doesn't exist anymore because the Germans bombed it and blew it up. But we have a photograph of it. And uh, so I've got it here. I've hopefully got enough to, to hand out. Um, 
So the right, they're the yeah, they're the double sided ones. You pass them that way. Um, <laughs> these are the <laughs> single sided <laughs> ones. So if I, so if I they go. So he was a young man when he painted this, that painting. So the one I want you to look at, the painting, if you've got the two-sided thing, it's that one. It's this one I'm talking about, this one here. The one where the angel has their hand on Matthew's hand. Okay? So... As you can see, sadly, this is where the the, um, the computer went on the fritz. So, in this in this one that you're all supposed to be looking at just now, what's happening is Matthew is. This is the Bible. Matthew. The angel has the, has, uh, its hand on Matthew and is moving his, the hand is, cut, is holding the stylus. You see that, right? Mm -hmm. So, those of you who've got two-sided ones, turn it over. And pass them out, please. They're very difficult to see. Forty years later, a painting which still does exist, it's in the the French church in Rome, just or just off of the um, uh, what's it called? Piazzo. Oh, I can see it as well. Anyway, um, there's this other painting. Obviously, in the interim, somebody had explained to um, Caravaggio. Is talking to him, and the other one the angel is moving his hand. <coughs> it's a really good visual way, if you can see it, it's a really good visual way to um, to, to get into your head the difference between inspired and automaton. Okay? You see that? You see the difference there? So if you're ever confused about what inspiration is and how it works in scripture, it is like this. So here would be an example. Let's, so let me, uh, am I going to pick on? Uh, I'm going to pick on Kitty. Okay. So what's great about soccer? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sorry, is that your sport? <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, Say something positive about soccer. Soccer. Um, Very positive about them ladies. Well, uh, my grandsons play, and uh, 
It's a team sport. <laughs> All right. Okay, so if she was inspired by the Holy Spirit and they had to mention soccer in the passing, <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be. But what if the Holy Spirit asked me to talk about football? I could go on a lot longer about proper football than you could about soccer. But you know, you say football in French, you don't say usually in English, it's usually soccer. No. So when you say football... No, in English it's, it's football. Soccer? No, so in English, in English language, you have Australian rules football, you have Gaelic football, you have association football, you have American football. They're all football. So... But the point being that people take to the, the task that the Holy Spirit is guiding them to. They take what they know, and that's the skills that they have, and that's how they, they do it. So, who's left-handed here? Oh, of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> do you know that's where the word sinister comes from? The Latin for left is sinestra, and it's where we get the word sinister from. <laughs> Just to say, but so as an example, <laughs> if you were the sinister type, yes. right, and you were inspired by God, you wouldn't suddenly write properly with your right hand. You'd still be writing with your left hand, being sinister, oh. because what the inspiration does is it it takes your talents, your your life experience, and it gets you to convey it. Now, are we all educated to the same level? No. No. We're not, right? <coughs> so, if the Holy Spirit was inspiring me to write something um, for the sake of um, the message, it would probably be overly wordy and very pompous, right? <laughs> but the general message would be there. But if it was that, if it was the Holy Spirit was guiding the chief puba, <laughs> it would probably be much more succinct, much more to the point. That's why in Scripture you see so many different styles and different ways. So what kind of literature is in Scripture? <coughs> Bless you. Thank you. What kind of literature is in Scripture? Oh, come on. It's, it's not a trick question. <laughs> what kind of literature is in Scripture? Stories. Okay. There's, there's poetry. Somebody Stories. said historic. Uh, okay, so give me an example of poetry. Give me an example. Right, historic. Uh, birth of Christ. Okay, the Gospels are historic. Yeah. I thought you would have said the Acts of the Apostles. Well, Acts of the Apostles. <laughs> so, so we've got historic. We've got historic. We've got historic. We've got poetry. What other kinds of things have we got? Prophetic, an example. Jeremiah. Yep. What else have we got? Okay, but parables are found within the historic. Parables particularly apply to Jesus, but yes, that is that is there. Right? An example? Oh, how he used, as you said earlier, to tell stories that were quite abstract and were to be taken literally to prove the point. Give me an example of one. About the serpent being able to pick it up, any serpent in a one by two. Okay, I don't know if I would say that was a a parable, <coughs> a parable, for example, would be Good Samaritan. 
Something like that. Yes? Philosophical example? Yeah. John Whitby, yes. What was what? Wisdom. The, the Book of Wisdom would be another one. The Apocalypse definitely would be one. Unless you included ap apocalyptic literature, which then you'd have part of Daniel. What else have we got? Music, well, yes, we do songs. Yes, we have songs. And do you, what, what would you pick for songs as an example? You're going to be kidding me. Uh, <laughs> so we'll go with the book that's called The Song of Songs. Okay, what, uh, what else? Prayer. Prayer, yes, we do. Definitely do. Who would like, who can give us an example of a prayer from Scripture? Absolutely, there, Father. And, of course, the Psalms could also be seen as, but there are some things that are written specifically as that. What else have you got? Pastoral, yes. General has a different name. Who said pastoral? General has a different name. <coughs> In the New Testament, the epistles that are pastoral are often called Catholic or Pauline, which we'll get to. What else? History. We had history, yes. What else? <coughs> Sorry? Direction. Direction. Directions. Okay, now you're getting close to the one that none of you have said. <laughs> Authoritative. You're getting very close to the one that none of you have said. Rules? You're really close to <laughs> This is like warm, get warm up, get warm up. Law. None of you mentioned law, but law is a big part of the Old, the Old Testament, the Torah, and the, the start of the Old Testament. So I've got a... Oh, watch that leg. Don't tell me to watch it after I've kicked it. <laughs> tell me to watch it as you see me going to kick it. That's what you realise. That's what you realise. That idiot's going to kick that thing. Okay, so looking at this thing over here, um, four groups of the Old Testament. Who wants to have a go at trying to name the four groups? Groupings. You've, you've, you've said them all. They're all types. No, no. Groupings. Law, history, wisdom. And the prophets. The five books at the start of the of the, the Bible have two other names. Do you know what the names are? You know what the names are, you just might not associate with them. Pentateuch. yeah, what's his other name? Torah. Torah, yes. The Pentateuch and the Torah, the books of the law. Why are they so important, Phil? Set the groundwork, it was the basis for... When the Pharisees are talking about the Law and the Prophets, it's the first five books and the major prophets that they're talking about. The historical books, there's 16 of them. That's Joshua, Judges, Ruth, both Samuels, both Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, 
Nehemiah, Tobit, Judith, Esther, and then both Maccabees. The wisdom books, which is partly the philosophical books, but also the, the poetry, uh, is Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, Wisdom, and Ecclesiasticus. The prophets are, there's 18 different prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Baruch, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And there's only one of those, there's only one book in the Old Testament, in all the classes that I've ever taught, there's only one book in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, I have never quoted in a class. And there's no way you would know that. Even if, like Pam, you've listened to all the classes that were recorded, you would never notice. I have never, to my knowledge, quoted Obadiah. Now, I've read it. Well, I think it's like seven chapters long or something like that. But I've never quoted it. So next week, if I can, I'm going to. <laughs> Just so I can say that I've quoted every book in the Bible uh, during classes. Okay, so New Testament... Four categories. Anybody want to have a go? Gospels, Testament letters, Catholic letters. Historical. So history. What's the largest part of the New Testament? Letters. We hear from the man all the time. Isaiah? New Testament. The letters of Paul. Sometimes called the Pauline epistles. Then you have what's called the Catholic epistles. That doesn't mean that it's only us that have them. It's Catholic as in they're not addressed to specific people. So you know, Paul's letters are all addressed to particular communities. The Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, Philemon. And under this, Pauline epistles also is included Hebrews. Nobody knows who wrote the letter to the Hebrews. If you've got an old enough Bible, so if you've got a Dewey Reims, like this little treasure has, if you've got Dewey Reims, it says St. Paul's letter to the Hebrews. But nobody knows. Um, and the reason why they're not sure is because of linguistic, stylistic ways. But it's nearly always considered still under the Pauline epistles because traditionally, if saints are talking about it or quoting it and things like that, they're always including it with St. Paul. And then the last part, the last section. Revelation. What's that under? Prophecy. What do you think? Pardon? Prophecy. Prophetic, yes. Prophetic. And that is, that's the, the book of Revelation. Um, so. Okay. A few minutes ago. So, inspiration guides the author, the Holy Spirit guides the author to write 
in such a fashion that they are expressing the message, but not necessarily in the way that the next door neighbour would, would do it. Now, do you see why it's so important to have a guide? Because the prophet Jeremiah was a priest, very well educated. But Daniel wasn't. So they're right in different ways. They have different ways of conveying ideas. And if you don't know that, if you don't realize that, if we, we go to, if we go to the New Testament, so Matthew, what audience is Matthew writing to? Jewish converts or Jews, right? Um, what audience is Mark writing to? Yes. What audience is Luke writing to? Yes. One is Luke, one is writing to Gentiles of a more Roman background. The other one of a more Greek background. Who is John writing to? Everyone. The Everyone, the because he's writing to the fledgling church. And he's explaining things because John's gospel was probably written to counter heresies that had already started to develop. So that's why in John's gospel, there's so much philosophy. The reading today for Mass, the gospel today for Mass, was only something like eight verses long. And in those eight verses, there's packed in really dense theology. Because... John's work, John is educated, and John's work is aimed at explaining, reinforcing the theology of the fledgling church. Now, I said, who is Luke writing to? And you said? How do you know Luke actually wrote it? But it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't say anywhere in Luke's Gospel or in Matthew's Gospel. Hello, my name is Luke. I'm a doctor. I was born as a Greek. I'm a convert. And here's a work of history. It doesn't say that. He says who he's writing to. He doesn't say who he is. If you are a Sola Scriptura Christian... So if you get somebody come to your door and they say everything's in here and you say, if you turn to Luke's gospel and they hand it to you and you say, how do you know that was written by Luke? How do you know that's the one I wanted? <laughs> They'll need to tell you. Either because it says it in my index, <laughs> right, which is tradition, or they'd need to admit it's tradition. It doesn't say anywhere who wrote them. We know Paul wrote the letters he wrote, because they're letters. And we, we have them. You know, they're signed by him. We know who they go to, because he says, dear Timothy, dear Titus, whoever, dear Corinthians. But we don't know Luke wrote those, apart from the fact that we're told it by, we're told it by tradition, but it's reinforced and given what's called an imprimatur, a stamp, by the magisterium. That's how we know that's why, these are all examples of why you can't separate these things. You can't separate these three things. So if we go back to, just very quickly, because we're getting close to the end of time. So, 
if we go into the photographs you've got of your great great grandfather, right? And I say to you, John, how do you know that is him? It's not signed at the back. And you say, my parents gave me it, and their parents gave me it, and their parents gave it, and I say, I don't, I don't recognise that. I don't recognise that authority. If it doesn't say it in the back, I don't believe that's who it is. How would you feel? I wouldn't care. Yeah, <laughs> you'd be insulted. <laughs> yeah, no, you'd be insulted. Yeah, but I mean, truthfully, it, how could you understand? You know, you have your own feeling. I have my tradition. I know what I was taught. You're an outsider. And you recognize the source as authoritative. Mm -hmm. So you believe that's who it is. That's what we do. Somebody saying to us, if it's not in the Bible, I don't believe it, is saying the same thing. If it's not written on the back, I'm not accepting that. That's insulting to us. Um, especially if you remember the, the handout from the very start of the first week about the whole gap thing, about, uh, and also the T-shirt that says, who founded your church? So, here we are, near the end of time. So, let's um, end with close to Pentecost. Let's to the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and rekindle in them the fire of thy love. Set forth thy spirit, and they shall be created. Let us pray. O God, who didst instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us in the same spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Michael the Archangel, defend us from hell. We are safeguard against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, be humbly prayed. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Hosts, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits that prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you all, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for coming, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. You can listen again to this or any other episode of Let's Talk Catholic at our blog, Let's Talk Catholic Podcast.blogspot.com, or you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or almost any other podcast provider. You can also like us on Facebook. Let's Talk Catholic is produced by Nick Medelsky and can be heard right here on Relevant Radio in Northern Michigan, Saturdays at noon.